Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for joining us on Living History. Before we get started on this week's episode, don't forget about Peter Hart's Gallipoli book that's coming out. I hope you've heard about this. We've been talking about it for a while now. Peter Hart has written a book called The Gallipoli Evacuation, all about the evacuation of Gallipoli, surprisingly, and he's written that for Living History for us. We're going to be publishing this book, and it's coming out in September. It'll be printed in September, but as of next week, we are going to be pre-selling the book on our website, so you can pre-order that book and then have it in your hand as soon as it comes out in September. And if you pre-order the book on the website, you will also receive a very special behind-the-scenes interview with Peter Hart. I've recorded it already. It goes for about two hours, and Peter breaks down everything about the evacuation, his motivation for writing the book, and most importantly, those wonderful sources that he used to tell the story. And we've included in that behind-the-scenes interview audio files, actual veterans in their own words talking about Gallipoli, and the evacuation. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. So as of next week, go to the website, which is livinghistorytv.com and pre-order the book, The Gallipoli Evacuation. In the meantime, here's this week's podcast. A Living History Production. This is The Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and thank you for joining us on Living History. Last week marked the anniversary of the D-Day invasion, the great campaign to retake Western Europe from the Nazis. And we all know the American story pretty well through films like Saving Private Ryan and the Band of Brothers miniseries. And last week we did a wonderful podcast about the British and Commonwealth contribution to the D-Day landings with Paul Reed. So if you haven't heard that one, go back and listen to that. But there's a part of the story that we don't know very much about at all. And I think as Australians, this comes as a great surprise to us. But there was actually quite a significant Australian connection with D-Day. And so to hear all about that, to learn more about it, we're joined by Dr. Lachlan Grant from the Australian War Memorial. Lockie, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, good afternoon, Matt. Let's start, mate, with the what were Australians actually doing on D-Day? I think most people wouldn't even realise there were Australians there. But there was a huge role played by the Australians on D-Day, wasn't there? Well, yeah, the, the Australian story is uh, not well known, but it's a very, very diverse story. One of the one of the difficulties is that the, there's a few uh, Royal Australian Air Force units involved, obviously, but a majority of the Australians are spread throughout the Royal Air Force and Royal Navy uh, across across the fleet, uh, flying all different types of aircraft. In total, there's three thousand three hundred Australians participate on sixth of June. About five hundred of those in the Navy and about uh, 2,800 
serving across over 200 Royal Air Force and RAAF squadrons. That's actually a significant contribution. Uh, I mean, when you think about the numbers that landed on D-Day, it's only a small amount of the total. But I think this is something we forget, that at this stage of the war, we tend to think as Australians that our, our, our efforts were all focused on the war in the Pacific against the Japanese. But throughout the Second World War, we maintained a very strong contribution to the European theatre, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. And um, we shouldn't just um, talk about the numbers on D-Day itself, because with a lot of military campaigns, the the campaign goes on for 10 more weeks. And there's another 10,000 Australian airmen in reserve in Britain at this time. And casualties are quite high in the Air Force through this period. So more and more of those Australians in the reserve units are joining operational squadrons. Uh, in the Battle of Normandy as it's uh, waging over the weeks after 6th of June. So what were these uh, airmen and naval people mostly doing uh, in the lead-up to D-Day and then on D-Day itself? Well, that's a really good point about the lead-up to D-Day because uh, we know many of the Australians in Europe were serving in Bomber Command and Bomber Command played a very important role in the interdiction campaign in the lead-up to D-Day. And in fact, the, um, the interdiction campaign, uh, one of the planners for that was an Australian Air Commodore, Kingston McClary, uh, who was, um, and the interdiction campaign was, um, bombing bridges, bombing railway yards, essentially isolating Normandy from the rest of France so the Germans wouldn't be able to get reinforcements into the area. And so Australian bombing, um, bomber command units in particular were heavily involved in those operations in the weeks leading up to D-Day itself. Are we talking about here specific RAAF squadrons or are we referring simply to Australian servicemen who were scattered amongst British crews? Yeah, so this is this is, has got its origins in the Empire Air Training Scheme and this was a scheme that saw uh, 28,000 Australians trained as air, air pilots or air crew and then they were sent off to join squadrons in Britain. And at the time of D-Day, there's about 16,000 Australian airmen based in Britain, but most of them are serving in Royal Air Force squadrons. So they're serving as individuals, um, uh, seconded, if you like, to those Royal Air Force squadrons. But there's also the uh, um, Article 15 um, RAAF squadrons in Europe at that time as well. But just to give you an indication of that diversity, and this is one of the difficult things um, uh, pulling the story together, because it's not like telling the story of a division, at, an Australian division at, Debr- at Tobruk or a battalion, um, the story of a battalion at El Alamein. Uh, they're serving as individuals scattered across the Royal Air Force and across ships in the, the Royal Navy. But to give you an indication of that diversity, on D-Day itself, the different types of aircraft that Australians were flying, they were flying Spitfires, Typhoons, Mustangs, uh, flying Hellcats in the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm, flying Hurricanes, Tempests, flying Lancasters, Halifaxes, Mosquitoes, Baltimores, Stirlings, Dakotas, Sunderlands, Bowfighters, Mitchells and Albemarle. So that, that just gives you a sense of diversity there across all the different commands, a uh, huge range of uh, roles from bombing, supporting the ground units and um, dropping paratroopers uh, in the first actions on D-Day itself. Well, tell us a little bit about what the experience was like for those airmen. What were they actually doing in those weeks and days leading up to D-Day? And then what were they doing on D-Day itself? Well, I'll give you, um, give you a story of one, one Australian pilot, Ron Minchin, uh, and he spoke about he was in number 38 group uh, in 196 Squadron flying Stirlings. And the role of uh, 196 was to uh, tow, tow gliders and drop paratroopers. And Ron Minchin uh, in the weeks leading up to D-Day, there was that intense training, uh, dropping dropping the paratroopers, dropping uh, towing gliders and dropping gliders. 
And uh, on D-Day itself, Minchin talks about the difficulty flying uh, in the conditions. There's strong crosswinds. Uh, as we know, the weather, famously, the weather was uh, pretty rough on the day itself it was chosen. Uh, there was strong crosswinds, so keeping on course was very difficult. Uh, it was very dark when he was flying, but also in the Stirling, to, they had to slow right down to drop the paratroopers at low altitude, and it's almost at stalling speed. So uh, he talks about uh, trying to keep the uh, the Stirling level uh, without stalling, uh, and knowing when they're approaching the drop zone, all the paratroopers in his Stirling were heading to the back of the Stirling where the hatch is for them to go out. So it's causing an unevenness in uh, in his aircraft. So just trying to keep level and straight and not stall. Uh, he's talked talked about having one hand on the the throttle and the other hand on the on the stick, trying to keep in control. But then also uh, the night sky lighting up when another Stirling was hit and seeing uh, paratroopers coming down and trying to avoid them as well as he's flying flying through the stream as he's dropping uh, dropping paratroop the British uh, Six Airborne. It's one of the unsung stories, really, of the uh, of the invasion. Is that the the job played by those pilots? The I mean, we talk a little bit about the glider pilots and the tough job they had to do, but the the pilots of those transport planes that were were dropping the paratroopers had a pretty awful time, and that quote really just sums up um, the difficulties they encountered, doesn't it? Yeah, and quite a large proportion of uh, the pilots in Number Thirty Eight Group were were Australians. So something like fifteen percent, or, or forty one of the pilots, and. Um, and mention himself, uh, he, I mean, the famous, uh, famous title of, uh, Cornelius Ryan's book, The Longest Day, uh, mention himself through, flew three times on D-Day. He, uh, did the first parachute drop around midnight. Um, he returned again to drop, uh, gliders and supplies in the afternoon. And then again on the evening of 6th of June. So three operations in one day. And what about after D-Day itself? Because the Air Force played a huge role. The, the reason D-Day occurred in so many ways was because of the air superiority that we had uh, over Normandy. What about in the days after D-Day? Did, were the Australians actively involved as the, as the battle for Normandy really picked up steam? Absolutely. And this is where the um, Australian casualties really start to build in supporting the ground forces and supporting the lodgement in those 10 weeks after D-Day itself. Uh, on D-Day, there's 13 Australians that are killed killed in action, uh, two sailors and 11 airmen. But these sort of numbers continue in the days after for the Air Force. Uh, on 7th of June, uh, 20 Australian airmen are killed. Uh, on 8th of June, it's another 22. Uh, you know, as the month goes on, the 13th of June, 28. And, in fact, during this period of the battle and the, and the build-up with that interdiction campaign, 1,100 Australians are killed in the air war in Europe. Uh, and, yeah, it's quite a significant number if we think compare it to some of the other campaigns Australians served in in the Second World War. Uh, it shows you the, the contribution, particularly by the Royal Australian Air Force. And 1944, in this period of 1944, was the worst for the RAAF in terms of casualties. And it's very much supporting that lodgement in Normandy. That's absolutely extraordinary, those numbers. And I suppose it makes sense that as the as the line advanced across Normandy and then across France towards Paris and then eventually across Western Europe, the, the sorties are becoming longer, they're having to fly further, they're more likely to encounter uh, German aircraft as they push more into Western Europe. So I suppose it makes sense that the casualties are increasing as that battle just grinds on. Yeah, and the um, Australian uh, airmen fighting in the second tactical air force, so these are guys uh, flying... Spitfires and Typhoons, and this includes um, the Australian Spitfire Squadron, uh, 453 Squadron, uh, which was one of the first uh, squadrons to have wheels on the ground in France after the landings. But their, their airfield 
it was very close to the front line. So, yeah, they come under enemy shell fire, but they're essentially taking off and almost immediately engaging ground contacts. And very dangerous flying at low level in the Spitfires and the Typhoons. Um, and 453 Squadron, during during the first few months of Normandy, they essentially turned over the entire squadron. Um, and that's, that's through uh, losses of pilots killed in action, uh, those wounded, uh, those who finished their operation, but essentially they've, they've turned over the squadron over 100% um, during this period. It gives you a sense of the numbers. And there's a great account in the War Memorials collection by a typhoon pilot named Herbert Coatman. And he joined, uh, he joined his typhoon squadron uh, in Normandy a few weeks after uh, the campaign started. And he said after only a couple of days, he thought he wasn't going to survive the war. He had this really fatalistic approach. Uh, Coatman did survive, but he said that uh, on VE Day, when the wing was um, celebrating the Allied victory, he looked around and he felt really sad and lonely because he was the only Normandy veteran uh, left from the squadrons that he joined uh, several months before. That's extraordinary, isn't it? I, I think it's something we often don't consider with Normandy is that we think, even though D-Day was you know, horrific, obviously, for the, especially for the men coming ashore on the beaches, we seem to think of D-Day as the beginning of the end. And, and we almost summarise the Second World War after D-Day as it, you know, it sort of wrapped up pretty quickly from that point onwards. But some of the toughest fighting of the entire war took place between D-Day and the surrender in 1945, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we uh, after the D-Day campaign, there's the Market Garden operations uh, capturing those bridges at uh, Nijmegen, Eindhoven and, and Arnhem and, and the, the Australian guys in the RAF, of course, again, are heavily involved in that. Uh, they're heavily involved in supporting, um, in particular, the, the American troops during the Battle of the Bulge, which was the... Um, costliest campaign of the, for the Americans in the entire war. And they're, they're flying right up through um, the, into the um, advance into Germany, right up to VE Day. And what about coming back to D-Day, Lachlan, what about the experience of the Navy? Because obviously this is an amphibious landing. The, the ships were a vital part of the story. What, was the, uh, what were the men of the, uh, the, the Navy doing from an Australian perspective? Well, there's some um, pretty incredible stories by some of our, um, our members of the Royal Australian Navy. There's no Royal Australian Navy ships involved in D-Day, but there's about 500 sailors who have, were sent over to the UK to serve on attachment in the Royal Navy. Many of these men had gone across as in what was called the Yachtsman Scheme, and so these were sailors that had small boating experience, like yachting experience, and these guys, of course, were um, ideally um, experienced for commanding small craft, such as landing craft. So a lot of them ended up in combined operations. Uh, one of them uh, who, was, who was killed at Juno Beach on D-Day was Sub-Lieutenant Richard Peary. Uh, D-Day happens to be his 24th birthday. Uh, Peary had played for the Hawthorne Football Club in the then VFL um, in Melbourne before enlisting in the Royal Australian Naval Reserve. And on D-Day, he was in command of a, a landing craft support which had a, a specific role of getting in really close to the shoreline and it had a, a gunnery spotter on board who was trying to spot the uh, German artillery positions to um, direct the gunfire from those British battleships and cruisers and destroyers offshore. And um, he was spotted by the enemy and his, his ship was, was hit and it was also said it simultaneously struck a mine and he was killed in action and one of he's one of two of the Australian sailors who were killed on the day 
It's um, it must have been a pretty horrific ordeal for those blokes coming in in the landing craft, and you know, being right at the coalface. It's not just the uh, it's not just the the blokes getting out of the out of the landing craft that are going to come under fire. Those the, the 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 vessels themselves made pretty inviting targets for the Germans, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the um, the other Australian who lost his life uh, was uh, Sub Lieutenant Bruce Ashton at Goldbeach, and he was in command of a landing craft assault equipped with a special hedgerow mortar, which was um, there to clear clear a path up the beach for the infantry. And his his landing craft was um, was hit by a landing craft that was out of control and um, capsized his his um, craft, and uh, and he was killed in action as well. And uh, he's he's buried in the the Bayou War Cemetery uh, in Normandy. But there's some other um, amazing stories of Australians in in the navy at, at um, on D-Day. Uh, Lieutenant Kenneth Kenneth Hudspeth from Tasmania has an extraordinary story. He commanded one of the midget submarines, one of the two British midget submarines, which were essentially the vanguard to the fleet. They were the first two two boats to go in to shore, and he actually spent several days. Um, offshore because of the delay in the weather, uh, his, his submarine had to remain submerged. Uh, and during daylight hours over there at that time of day, they had to be submerged for about 17 hours before they could pop up for air um, at night time. But his, his uh, craft was there to mark the approach lanes to the beach. And so in the hours before the British fleet arrived, they surfaced, um, set up beacons to help guide the landing craft into shore and their account's amazing because they're in this very choppy waters and they can hear the bomber streams going overhead and pulverizing the german positions on shore and they're keeping an eye out for that first glimpse of a of a landing craft to come through and they then they hear the naval gunfire going over the top of them and you know it must have sounded like a, a freight train going over and then out of the in the shadows and the gloom they start seeing landing craft going past them on either side and um, he and his crew were sort of standing on the deck with waves crashing over them cheering them on Um, would have been quite a scene just extraordinary i had no idea about that story it's brilliant his extraordinary tale that was actually his second trip to normandy he'd been there in um in january uh and in his uh x-craft submarine where he landed beach commandos who helped map the Omaha, what ended up being Omaha Beach, and he he actually received his uh, second bar to a DSC he won on the attack on the Turpets um, the year before. So pretty incredible story of service uh, by by Kenneth Hudspeth. But D Day was his second trip to to the Normandy beaches. Who knew that there were these great Australian tales being uh, being told, uh, you know, being written. Uh, on D-Day, it's just it's just absolutely extraordinary. What about men who actually landed with British forces? Because they, even though Australians weren't involved in the landings, there must have been Aussies who were you know Australian-born men, born and raised men who were living in the UK and enlisted in the UK armed forces. Do we have any numbers? I know it's vague. I know it's difficult to track them, but do we have any sort of indications of how many Australians were serving in the army and actually landed as part of D-Day? Yeah, it's really hard to gauge how many enlisted directly in the British forces during the war, how many Australians in the in the UK enlisted in the British forces. Uh, so there were some Australians. We do know that there was uh, 13 Australians, members of the AIF, who were serving on attachment with the British forces who landed in Normandy. Um, these guys were sent over there to, to learn about some uh, combined operations and landings um, using the tactical air force and, and then they brought that experience back to the Pacific for the final campaigns of the war. Uh, one of them was uh, Major Joe Gallup, who is uh, quite a famous character. He appears in the uh, famous painting at the very beginning of the um, 
Australian War Memorial Second World War Gallery painting of Bardia. And um, Gallard has an account where he's got his Australian arm flashes on his shoulder and there's German prisoners uh, filing past. And uh, when the Germans saw his Australian flash, they, they asked where the other Australians were and, and Gallard said, oh, it was just him. And he said they started taking off their wristwatches to give to him. And he said, I didn't know whether to be flattered or insulted. <laughs> the, I love that. The That's reputation pretty... of the Australian soldier from the, from the desert had, uh, had gone that far. I love that story. That's absolutely brilliant. We uncovered a story um, when we were researching the Memorials Collection a couple of years ago about an amazing Australian woman who landed in Normandy with the British forces. Uh, her name was Olive Sherrington, and she was a nurse in the British Army in the First World War and had married an Australian officer and moved out to Australia. And um, after her, her husband had passed away, she was holidaying in Britain when the war broke out and enlisted in the Mechanised Transport Corps. And she served in France in 1940, and she was one of the last one of the last British women to leave France after Dunkirk. But she was one of the first to return as well when, when she drove her truck off a landing craft uh, Normandy on about D-Day plus three. Um, and she was mentioned in dispatch, dispatches and had received a commendation from bravery from King George and Winston Churchill. And um, we have her uniform and artefacts in the collection at the memorial. Um, her, she returned to Australia seven years after her holiday began um, uh, after, after the war. What a wonderful story. I had no idea about that. That's absolutely incredible. This is what I love about speaking to all, uh, all you talented people at the War Memorial, Auckland, is that you, you've, just, you've just uncovered these incredible Australian tales. And without the work that you guys are doing there, we, we wouldn't know anything about these stories. Well, as I said, Sherrington has an incredible account of uh, the campaign in France in 1940. And after D-Day, uh, she, she's very close to the front lines in Holland during um, that market garden campaign and um, she's arrives at uh, Belson not long after the um, deliberation of the, the camp there and uh, some of the items in the memorials Holocaust display um, came from Sherrington who collected them at the Belson camp after the war. What about after the war, the men and women who'd served on D-Day, did they receive special recognition from the Australian government for their contribution to D-Day? Did they form associations? What did they do in the decades after the war? Well, that's a really interesting question, Matt, because the involvement in D-Day um, in many ways was largely forgotten for many years. And in the lead up to the 50th anniversary, uh, when Australia was invited to uh, participate in the commemorations in France by the French President and Prime Minister, um, the Australian response at an official level was, well, we, didn't, we weren't really involved. And of course, the veterans who were there knew we were involved and wrote to uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs is saying, yeah, we were there and that. And eventually a, a cohort of Australian veterans went over. But this is a part of the, the difficulty for the veterans who were spread out across all of those different squadrons um, across the Royal Air Force. Uh, they came home and many of them were a part of what was the Odd Bods Association. Odd Bods being odd bodies in the RAAF was sort of the um, colloquialism of the time. But they didn't have that sort of single experience and single voice. So... Um, Different different members of the Oddbods Association had very distinct and different experiences. And I've read an account of one typhoon pilot who um, talked about how there was no other typhoon pilots in, in the association in the city that he lived in. And so there was no one around who had the kind of experience in the war he had. And so every five years he would go back over to the UK to join the, in the festivities and, and um, with commemorations with his um uh, squadron mates over back over in the UK. So 
he just didn't find anyone in Australia who understood his his experience. And Lockie, are the is the story, the Australian story of D Day, is that told in any way through exhibitions at the uh, Australian War Memorial? Uh, yes, last year we had a very special exhibition uh, specifically on the Australian some of the Australian stories of D-Day and that was one of the first uh, major exhibitions we would have had at the memorial uh, recognising the Australian involvement and telling some of those individual stories but we have a a small display case in the Second World War Gallery uh, telling just a handful of the stories and as I said including the uniform of Olive Olive Sherrington the the, the driver of the in the mechanised transport corps. Well, it's really just wonderful stuff. As we said, a bit of an unknown chapter of a really important story. And if, if you're listening to this and if you have a connection with an Australian involvement in D-Day, then please certainly get in touch because I'd love to hear your story. Um, Lachlan, what are you working on now at the War Memorial? What are we going to see next from Lachlan Grant? Well, I have, I have been working on a book on the Australian experiences of, of D-Day, which is a, a slow work in progress at the minute. But my main job at the War Memorial is uh, looking at the Australians in Bomber Command for the new Anzac Hall development. Well, it's wonderful stuff, mate. I encourage everyone to get down to the War Memorial in Canberra, at, uh, especially with the changes that are going on there. There's uh, bigger and better things always always coming to fruition at the War Memorial. But, uh, Lachlan, thank you so much for joining us to tell us this story. It's an important story, and uh, it's just really wonderful to hear your account of it. No, terrific, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 